Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Rebecca Stott on her new novel, Dark Earth. Rebecca Stott is a novelist, broadcaster, historian and fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She is Professor Emeritus at UEA and her books include Darwin's Ghosts and Darwin and the Barnacle the novel's Ghost Walk, which was a New York Times bestseller, The Coral Thief, and the Costa Award-winning memoir In the Days of Rain. And today we're going to be talking about Rebecca's latest novel, which is Dark Earth. Rebecca, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. First of all, tell us how you would describe this novel. Yeah, well, it's set in the 6th century. So it's set in a period of extreme transition. So we know that the Romans left Britain round about 420. And my novel is set 80 years later. So it's a period in which the local tribes and the incoming tribes, the Saxons and the, the Saxons, the uh, Angliae and the, the Frisians are all, you know, coming in bit by bit, boat by boat. So a period of kind of quite widespread ethnic diversity but also of kind of subsistence living, people just scratching a living uh, without, you know, surplus. But we've also got the beginnings of the rise of what I call in my book, the overlords, people who were set to control large swathes of land and are prepared to fight to do so, not just Saxons, but Britons as well. So it's a period of kind of, yeah, of, of extreme change and conflict. And my, uh, I have two daughters who are the daughters of a Saxon smith. And for one reason or another, they are forced to leave the island, which has been home for uh, five years, a mud island on the Thames where they've been exiled with their father. Uh, and they're forced to go on the run. And they end up in the ruined city of Londinium, which by this point, great mile-wide city, built by the Romans, largest uh, colonial outpost to the north, largest northernmost colonial outpost, and abandoned for 80 years by this point at least. So, you know, what that gave me a chance to do is to set the remainder of the novel inside the ruined city. 
Can you tell us where the title Dark Earth comes from? It's something that's only lightly related to the actual plot of the novel, but it's a, a really fascinating story. Oh, yeah, this is one of the things that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I first read about it. So uh, my novel is steeped in, in my reading of archaeology of this period. And you kind of have to do that if you want to understand this, what I call the darkest corners, or what archaeologists sometimes call the darkest corner of the Dark Ages, because there are no records. So in terms of history or you know, textual evidence about life in this period, there is nothing. There are only archaeological scraps. So I read a lot of archaeology about the period, uh, wanting to find out, well, what was life like after the Romans left Britain? And uh, what I discovered was that cities like Londinium and the other Roman cities, when archaeologists dig in them now, they go, you know, you have to imagine going through this Victorian layer, going back to the 18th century layer of London, down through the layers, back to sort of medieval layer. And then they reach the period, which is the post-Roman period, i.e. the period in the city of Londinium, where after the Romans left, the period of its long abandonment. Archaeologists think maybe as much as 400 years where nobody or hardly anyone went inside those walls. And you get down to that layer and, you know, whilst all the other layers are full of stuff, you know, dropped things, suddenly you reach this layer of black soil, dark earth is what they call it. In some areas of Londinium, it's as much as two metres thick and in others, you know, just much, much shallower. Uh, so there were all sorts of debates back in the 80s about, well, what is this? You know, what, what can it be? And there were some bizarre theories about, well, maybe the Anglo-Saxons and the native Britons shoveled, you know, brought uh, wheelbarrows of soil in from outside in order to plant market gardens. And other people were, were saying, well, you know, yeah, that can't be the case. And so there were big debates about it. Um, now I think the consensus is simply that that layer of dark earth is a kind of composted layer. You know, and you think about all the leaves that would have fallen in that sleeping beauty of a city, you know, completely abandoned, leaves falling, plants growing, you know, the sleepy, rewilded state of the ruined city. And all of those leaves packing down and packing down within within walls, you know, where the roofs have gone. So you've sort of got a giant compost bin in a way. And then worms would have gone to work. And of course, the roots of plants would have, you know, broken it all down. So, you know, the, the stuff of the ruined city would have eventually formed this layer of dark earth. And to me, it captured those two words, just captured something of the kind of darkness of this period, which we call the Dark Ages, but also the kind of sleepy, mysterious world that you know we can't reach except through archaeological fragments yeah and i was going to say i mean obviously it can only ever really be speculation but why on earth would the various tribes that were existing around there as the romans were leaving not want to move into these beautiful villas with mosaics and murals and plumbing and hot water why was it abandoned for so long Oh, such a great question. <laughs> that was, of course, one of the things I, you know, I started with. That was just such a great question. Why didn't they go in? Well, uh, why would they? You know, they lived in uh, wooden buildings. They built in wood. 
they had little compounds mainly, you know, the Anglo-Saxons and the, the Britons were, would have built in wooden huts uh, in, in small compounds. So the stone wouldn't have been useful to them. So not even, you know, taking the stone out. So, you know, going into the city, imagine Pripyat, which is the city that was abandoned after Chernobyl. That city has been abandoned for 30 years. And already, you know, the wild animals have moved in, the roofs are down, there are trees growing up through buildings. So that's just after 30 years. So imagine after 80 years or 100 years, you know, very quickly the infrastructure of the Roman city would have started to crumble. Um, Once you have, you know, once there is nobody there to sort of tend the plumbing and fix the pipes and all of that you know, those, those roofs would have gone in. And, you know, a city of that, of that scale would have taken a huge amount of effort and labour to keep, to keep it going, to keep the whole thing functioning. So, yes, ponds and, and pools would have clogged up, mosaics would have cracked. You know, that, that just the, the pummeling of the British climate on that city would have really uh, started to affect it very quickly. And, yeah, you would have had probably wild animals in there too. So. It wouldn't have gone in, A, because they were super busy, B, probably because they thought it was haunted. Again, that's speculation. But you know, if you think, well, what would have been in there? Lots of strange statues of other gods, you know, and, and an extraordinary city that they must, you know, we know from tiny scraps, you know, they must have thought this, this place belonged to a super race of some kind, you know. So maybe didn't go in because it was haunted. It was, you know, certainly dangerous. Um, yeah, they wouldn't. They were busy just scratching a living. So you know, there was no such thing as dark tourism in uh, in the sixth century. Um, in so far as you know, they, they might have taken day trips into the city to have a look around. Uh, so that, that's that's my conclusion. But of course, you know, these these things are speculation. So I want to talk about the sisters uh, Isla and Blue in a moment. But before we do. At the very start of the book, there's a tiny little prologue which talks about a a brooch. Tell us about that. Yes, I came across the brooch on the wall museum of London some time ago, and uh, I'd already started thinking about Roman cities and about living in the ruins of Roman cities, partly because I'd been travelling down through Jordan and I had seen a lot of abandoned cities kind of nudging up through uh, through the sand down there, often, you know, just open to the sky, mosaics and everything. And I was thinking about Londinium. So I went to the Museum of London and it, the section which covered the period between the abandonment of Londinium around 420 and then the reoccupation around about 900. You know, archaeologists generally agree that, okay, there might have been a few people going in, but largely it was abandoned. Nobody went in, nobody tried to live there. And uh, so the little section that they have in the Museum of London for this period of the city's life, the empty period, the post-human period of the city's life, is represented by a white corridor. You know, you come through the Roman London rooms, And they're full of stuff, full of the stuff that people have found digging in London. They have found all this Roman stuff, which represents the life of Roman London. And then we get to the post-Roman period, this derelict, 
abandoned 400 years or so of empty Londinium, and there's a white corridor. Okay, there's a map and a timeline. And then on that wall, there is also a frame containing a brooch. And the brooch is about mm, two inches across, less probably. Uh, It's rusted. It doesn't look anything special. It's got a nice pattern on it. And this was found in 1968 in a bathhouse at Roman Villa on the north bank of the Thames. And the person who found it, Peter Marsden, amazing archaeologist, he found it and immediately, he described it to me, I went to interview him, immediately knew it was a Saxon brooch. And that for him meant that a Saxon woman had dropped it on top of the fallen roof tiles of this bathhouse on the north bank of the Thames. And that meant here was evidence that at least one person did go in and that that person had, for some reason or other, dropped a brooch and had fallen on top of these roof tiles. So, again, fantastic moment of a portal, if you like. I think often these objects, some objects, archaeological objects, feel like portals into the past. And certainly for Peter Marsden, it had felt like that in 1968 when he pulled it out of the soil. And for me... Then questions started multiplying, you know, well, if no one else was going in, what was she doing in there? Was she on the run? Was it a love tryst? Was it just pure curiosity that made her take a boat across the river and scramble into the ruins? I mean, if you think about the the edge of the Roman city at this point, you know, and it's 80 years into its derelict um, 400 years, all of the wharves along the waterfront where the bathhouse is, uh, would have been, you know, rotting, difficult to moor your boat, you know. So how did she get across? And I went to see uh, Roy Stevenson, who is the curator of the Museum of London, some months later with these questions still going around in my head. And I remember it, such a generous man. He mentored me through the entire project. So I went to see him and we sat in the cafe at the Museum of London and I unfolded the map of Roman Londinium that uh, the Museum of London have produced. And we both sat there, you know, as like kind of like actors in a crime movie, you know, looking at this map. And I said to him, how would she have got in there? And you could see, you know, his eyes widening and he was really excited by these questions. And we both looked at the bridge. There's one bridge that went from Southwark through to in Roman Southwark, across to the north bank of Londinium. And uh, we know there was a bridge there, pretty much exactly where London Bridge is now. And so I said to him, would it have still been standing 80 years after the Romans left? And he said, oh, you know, I just don't know. I mean, it was built of wood and stone, so would it have been? So those kinds of questions were where we started. And we sat there for a really long time with that map and I was just firing questions at him and he was firing questions back and that's where it began, that little conversation. And I went on having those kinds of conversations with archaeologists through the duration of the novel, getting the map out, getting pictures out. And it's interesting, archaeologists, of course, like any professional academic, you're not supposed to speculate. You know, it's, you don't make wild claims. But when somebody like me comes along... Uh, who's done the reading, really, really read all the theories and so on, but has a novel to write, then it's an exciting kind of conversation because nobody's recording them. No one's going to quote them for saying, well, I reckon, 
But of course, they've got so much imaginative engagement with this period, which doesn't, you know, isn't really allowed to get into the work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rebecca Stott and we're talking about her new novel, Dark Earth. Rebecca, I said I wanted to talk about Blue and Isla then, the, the two sisters. So tell us something about who they are and I guess the situation that they're in when the novel starts, why they've ended up on this island. Blue and Isla are the daughters of a great smith. And this particular great smith is able to make what I call fire tongue swords. Uh, but archaeologists call pattern-welded swords. So being exiled to a, an island on the River Thames, just opposite the ruined city, because the local overlord wants to control his production, if you like. He doesn't want the great smith making swords for anyone else. And the two daughters have gone with their father to the island. So when the novel opens, they've been on the island for five years, their father dies right at the beginning of the novel. And because they know they are likely to be in trouble, because Isla has uh, learned how to make the swords, she's been helping her father in the forge, um, she's learned how to make them, and this is against uh, Saxon law in this period in my novel. They go to, first of all, they go to try to get kin protection 
from the local overlord. And when all of that goes wrong, the two of them have to escape once the overlord finds out that she has been making these swords. Uh, so it's very brutal. The world that they come out into, you know, they haven't been in the world for five years. And they come off the island and, first of all, they encounter the palace of the local overlord, which is a, a brutal place. And then they escape into the ruined city where they find a community of women. So very different people. Isla is practical, responsible, anxious, um, worried about her younger sister, keen to do the right thing, doesn't know what the right thing is always, and very talented in terms of her sword-making skills, but doesn't really understand the importance of that. And Blue, her sister, is younger and has a kind of dreamy character. You know, she, she clearly has what people in the novel refer to as the sight. She also has the touch, so she has healing powers, um, but she's not very practical, and so the two sisters are very, very different. And Isla often finds her sister frustrating, but both of them are transformed by the experience that they go through. We see members of various different indigenous tribes of that time in the novel, um, from you know the west of England and the southeast of England. And also there are characters, Caius being the most prominent one, who is somebody that is, you know, from outside of the UK originally, presumably as a remnant of the Romans, because we know now, obviously, that the Romans recruited people from everywhere around their empire. So it was a, a very multicultural army and, you know, a multicultural empire. So, yeah, so, so what do we know of to what extent that would have continued after, you know, people would have stayed behind or been left behind. And indeed, there are other characters, like Olga, for instance, is a character that's obviously come from like the far east of Europe, again, presumably as part of, you know, the Roman diaspora. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's one of the most exciting things in um, the findings of archaeology at the moment, that since the 60s or 70s, when it became possible to do isotope analysis of teeth and so on. You could tell just how extremely diverse this diaspora was. You know, people being buried in the Spitalfields Roman Cemetery, just to north of the city, um, who come from all over the, the empire. And, and, you know, people growing up in, in North Africa was fairly common on the Mediterranean, you know, just or people having moved around a lot. But when you think about the trading that went on in Londinium and the army, as you say yourself, you know, this seems to be widely accepted now that this was much more multicultural a city than previous archaeologists had perhaps been able to prove. So I really wanted to capture that. You know, we know, for instance, that there was a, a group of soldiers from uh, Libya who, who were helping to build Hadrian's Wall and that they, you know, they were there for a long time. They had a, they had a camp there. Uh, there are remains. Uh, there are evidence of their, you know, of their staff that we, that we are able to uh, say for certain that they came from, from Libya. So some of those people will have stayed on after the Romans left. Some of those people would have intermarried. So, you know, it seemed to me that this period, particularly with the tribes coming over from what, you know, we would now call 
Germany and Scandinavia after the Romans left. You know, this is an extremely multicultural, you know, people with different gods, people with different languages, different beliefs, people who dressed very differently. Um, and there's some wonderful, um, there's a historian who, whose work I really love called Robin Fleming, uh, a, a woman a professor from Boston. And, you know, she's been able to demonstrate that the brooch styles show that there's a lot of kind of sharing of fashion in this period. People uh, not just sticking to the brooches that their mother would have worn and their grandmother would have worn, but, you know, a lot of stylistic variation. So you can imagine the women in particular just sort of thinking, oh, really like that, really like the way she's dressed and incorporating different styles into their own dress. So uh, again, this takes me back to one of the things I'm really interested in with the historical novel is it, it does seem to me that if you are going to go back before the 19th century, for instance, and try and reconstruct periods of time, one of the things you do have to tackle, and it's a real challenge, is to try to get into the heads of people who would have been in dialogue with their gods a lot of the time, sacrificing things, engaged in ritual, making deals with the gods, talking to priests, you know, not just superstition, but real belief and fear. And to do that for this period when, you know, we don't know exactly what the Anglo-Saxons believed before Christianity came. And the Romans, of course, had lots of different gods, but also different cults that the soldiers were involved in. So I wanted to both tackle that, but sometimes it was really daunting because how do you get inside the heads of not just one person who believed in this set of gods, but several people who believed in different sets of gods? Um, And what would a community of women living together who perhaps worship different gods, how would they have evolved living together uh, for, you know, several decades? And it's fascinating and really hard because, you know, you're writing for a, a, a usually a secular reader, you know, uh, certainly not somebody who shares the belief systems of these characters. So, you know, you, you can't overdo it, but at the same time, it's got to be part of their worldview. It's got to be part of the way they live in the world and the way in which they see comets and the way in which they see floods and storms, that sense that there is something directing the natural world uh, in a way that you don't share. And I was also going to say another way that you realise that brilliantly, I thought, is that the relationship between the living and the dead in that there are, there are literally ghosts in the book. There's a much less porous line between the world of the living and the world of the dead in this world. Yes, I mean, if you go... If you go back to, you know, reading the Aeneid or reading um, the Odyssey, you know, this, this world of kind of, well, your, your father dies, but he, but he might come back and have something to say to you. Also, the sense that I wanted to convey here of how does that work in your psyche? You know, if you think your mother might still be alive, is she still alive? Is she in the world? Is she not in the world? But also the belief that many people shared, I think, in this period, that if you didn't bury your dead properly, according to the rites and rituals of your tribe, you know, if a body is left out for the dogs, that is really dangerous. And it means that you have not done your duty by that body, brother, sister, father. And that person could be wandering the earth forever. 
So, you know, the unburied ones are referred to in my novel and they're not kind of zombies or anything like super scary, but they are presences and they are in this novel actually seen kind of out of the corner of your eye, you know, off in the wood. Um, and then, of course, towards the end of the novel, they come into their own. They sort of the unburied ones gather. So that sense of the ancestors, but also of the dead who have not been properly buried in a time of conflict and a time in which there are different traditions of burying your dead. It felt to me like that line between the living and the dead would be porous. And particularly if you're living in a ghost city, you're living in a city where, you know, there are gods, there are people, there are presences, there is a sense of an empty city being somehow haunted. So all of those things become stronger and stronger as the novel goes on. And, you know, it's not a ghost story. I wasn't writing a ghost story. I was trying to convey a sense of that, the word you use, lovely word, porousness of uh, the boundary between the living and the dead. So to finish it off then, Rebecca, can I get you to read us a bit? Yes. So I will start right at the beginning. Uh, I will start with chapter one, and it is headed An Island in the Thames, circa AD 500. Isla and Blue are sitting up on the mound, watching the river creep up on the wrecks and over the black stubs of the old jetties out on the mudflats waiting for father to finish his work in the forge. Along the far riverbank, the ghost city, the great line of its long abandoned river wall, its crumbling gates and towers, is making its upside-down face in the river. Isla looks. The winter's picked up. It scatters the birds wading on the mudflats. It catches at the creepers that grow along the ghost city wall. It lifts and rustles them like feathers. Could be rain, Isla says. The wind's turned. It's late spring. There has been no rain for weeks, no clouds, just the baking, glaring forge fire of the sun. At first, after the long winter, the sisters had welcomed the sun coming in so hot. Dull roots had stirred. Flowers came early. First the primroses and bluebells in the wood, then the tiny spears of the cuckoo pint and the blackthorn blossom in the hedgerows. The bean seedlings had pushed up through the soil in their garden fingers unfurling into sails. Now the reeds whisper like old bones. The sisters swim in the river when they can steal away from the field or from father's forge. Around them the sun beats down on the mudflats. Meat turns, flies gather. So I've been talking to Rebecca Stotts. We've been talking about her novel Dark Earth, which is out in the UK from Forty State. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.